You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Canyon here in the Nori office in Ballard, Seattle. Christoph, we have another clean tech brain trust uh, guest on with us today. We do. And I'm really excited to have this conversation. Before we dive into it, if you like the show, please share it with someone and tell them why you liked it. It's better than that kind of generic, like, hey, this is a cool podcast. You should listen to it. But like, this person said this really insightful thing that I thought was cool. And <laughs> you're like micromanaging their their sharing of our podcast. Yeah, I am. Because that will get you more likes. It'll get you more shares and sticky growth. And we're all about that. It'll be fun to geek out about entrepreneurial concepts because we're actually sitting across the table from a fellow entrepreneur. She was the co-founder of the Seattle Impact Hub, and she also works in the solid waste management space. We've got Lindsay Ang. Lindsay, welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. Thanks, guys, for having me. Lindsay, we like to start this podcast out with people's story, really. What got them to where they are today? What makes them tick? Why trash? And what what does that have to do with reversing climate change? Great question, Christoph. So as Christoph mentioned, I started my career in the philanthropic and social impact sector, starting the Seattle Impact Hub, which is located down in Pioneer Square, part of the global affiliate Impact Hub network. Well, I was there for about seven years. I became very involved in the commercial development space because we were in Pioneer Square and there was a lot of development going on during that time. And I was part of the neighborhood business improvement district in Pioneer Square. And honestly, trash started out as an interest in affordable housing and why affordable housing was so expensive. And after I left Impact Hub, I took a sabbatical of about a year and a half and did some traveling, ended up in southeast Utah in southwest Colorado where my family is and where I spend a majority of my time, at least half of my time, and started digging into trash there. And over the last two years, I've transitioned fully into the solid waste sector, primarily in two different areas, one of which is low-tech processing of hard-to-recycle materials in rural areas. I'm currently working in Colorado, Wyoming, and Utah for those projects. And the other side is thinking about trash and material waste on a commercial scale, primarily working with market development and construction firms here in Seattle. And in terms of your question about why I am here and why trash matters from a clean tech perspective, I spend a lot of my time thinking about market development for trash and specifically market development in the industry sector as a whole. And agriculture and industry are the two biggest contributors to carbon. Um, And they're also the two biggest areas that don't have a lot of great solutions for carbon reduction and trash is. You can go ahead. That was just a a host only signal that you weren't (laughs) supposed to see. (laughs) I kind of thought that you guys were like, that's not right. (laughs) Nix this. We're going to cut it. It's terrible. No, sorry. Go ahead. I just have a question. I, I asked for priority. Yeah. Yeah. I think about trash in terms of commodities and for anyone that has ever done day trading in commodities. You know how volatile they are, and you also know how much oil drives the cost of commodities. And so in a large overall sense, trash comes down to the cost of oil, which we all know is a main driver of carbon and climate change. Great. Yeah, there's a lot that I'd like to ask about. First, a kind of a surprisingly difficult, I bet, question. The answer is, what is trash first? And then when you're talking about market development, are you talking about people that are buying waste from those industries or buying their recyclables? Uh, what does it mean to develop market in a solid waste like this? That's a great question. So I'll start with the market development side first. And just to kind of take a step back, in the solid waste sector today, there's three primary problem, so to speak. 
One of those problems is market development, so the creation of diverse domestic markets here in the U.S. And what that means is recycling, again, so these materials that are being recycled are commodities. Commodities are driven by supply and demand. There has to be a buyer in order to make recycling profitable. And as we all know, trash has been in the news for a long time because of the China ban that happened about two years ago when China stopped accepting all of our trash. And so what happened there is one of our largest buyers, about 60% of our trash, both trash and recycling we had been shipping to China for the last 30 years, went away. So market development is one component. Because we had been shipping trash to China for so long, there wasn't a lot of infrastructure for both processing materials and selling materials here in the U.S., so market development in terms of domestic market development. The second piece is product stewardship. So in terms of these materials that are currently being created by the industry sector, there's only really a finite number of options that one can do with these materials when they reach the end of their life. And so long-term, 10 or 20 years from now, product stewardship means manufacture responsibility at the end of that material's life, which is obviously a regulatory thing. And then third, obviously, just individual consumer behavior change. So coming from this at a large level, the um, system of trash, it really isn't one simple, elegant solution. There's multiple different components to it. But to get back to your question, Ross, about market development, That's what I mean when I say that is because our largest buyer of materials went away about two years ago, and I can get a little bit more into why that was, we don't really have any more buyers in the U.S. because the infrastructure hasn't been developed. So it's really thinking about diverse domestic market creation here in the U.S. Can I ask a clarifying question? So you talk about trash as a commodity, and when I think about commodities, I think about a good that represents something or it's a physical thing. So like rice, right? Commoditized rice. The carbon removal certificate is another example, right? One ton pulled out of the atmosphere represents another ton pulled out somewhere else. But with trash, you have so many different streams going into producing that trash. At what point do you commoditize it? And can you say this is trash as a commodity when you have so much variance around the inputs? They're, they're probably It's probably the same with like corn where they say it's this much protein and it's this quality of corn and you probably have trash that says it's 30% plastic and it's this. Am I right? Is that how it works? Yeah, you're definitely right when you think about certain materials. Let's just break down materials as a whole and let's talk specifically about the materials that we're probably all aware of. So there's plastics, there's cardboard, otherwise known in the trash world as OCC cardboard, which is just a heavier weight cardboard. Within cardboard, there's multiple different kinds of cardboard. There's aluminum, there's steel, um, there's organics. So these are materials that we are all aware of and handle every day. And so within the trash world, that's one of the problems as to why it's so difficult to value these commodities. You hit the nail on the head, Christoph. For example, with plastics, there's many different kinds of additives that are added to plastics in order to create this amazing material that we've come to use for 50 or 60 years now. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Not the Godfather. You're not going to do The Graduate, are you? The Graduate, no. yes. <laughs> I, I, I was just thinking, I was, I'm like, if I was Chris, hoping if Chris, we would avoid it. I was hoping so too. I think Christoph's done that one. I think I've said it before. <laughs> the future is in plastics. And he wasn't wrong, right? Plastics are a material that we have come to depend on as a society. And because there's so many additives that are added to it to create the many different kinds of plastics that we have in use today, that's why you see the different numbers on the bottoms of plastics that you handle and use. Because of those additives, it makes it really difficult to break down together and turn into a product that can be reused over and over again. You may have heard that plastic degrades every single time it's recycled, This is true. And a big problem with the recycling world today is just the fact that, especially at the city level, we've implemented what we call single stream recycling, which means that everything goes into one bin, 
which makes it easier for the consumer. But once that bin goes into a truck and then the truck goes to a recycling transfer station and it all gets dumped on the floor, there's technology that's required to sort it. Most of these material transfer stations were developed in the 60s to process newspaper and paper, which we don't see a lot of today. We don't see as much of today, especially phone books, which was another common thing that happened or that you saw a lot at these stations in the 60s. And because additives are being added to these materials at a faster pace than we're able to create technology to sort, it becomes really difficult. And that's the primary reason why China shut down imports from the U.S. because our material transfer stations, um, also called MRFs, which is where recycling goes to get sorted, they have a sorting rate of about 25% cleanliness. So what that means is that the contamination level, both in terms of how well it's sorted and how clean it is, is about 25%. The China ban said that we're not accepting anything above 0.5%. So you can imagine what that looks like at a domestic level, and that's why it's created the type of disturbance today. But anyway, to get back to your question, Yes, that is one of the very big problems in the recycling world is just the fact that all of these materials, even though they are traded as commodities, especially with plastics, commodities meaning number ones, number twos, number threes to number sevens, and then different types of cardboards, it is very difficult to create a positive value for that because the ability to sort is so challenging. Is there any place that does this um, with more of a consumer-driven uh, model? Like, for instance, sorting your own recyclables. I've been to places like Japan. I remember what, an Airbnb I stayed that had like 10 different uh, uh, sorting bins in, in the place I stayed. It was inscrutable to me, but it was also very new to me. Uh, you could also fine people for not participating, you, or you can make them do the warm fuzzies and do it themselves. But it, do they not pay people for this in places? Can you not, like, how come if I'm really diligent and have really clean recyclables, could I not make money on that? And if that doesn't happen, what's stopping it? That's a great question. There are still places that have bottle... It's like the California five-cent deposit thing. Yeah, bottle bottles, deposits. Yeah. You normally see those in more rural areas. But again, business was good for a while. We bailed our trash, whether it was well-sorted or not, and shipped it to China where they burned it because they needed the fuel. The trash that was primarily being shipped to China was being turned into... was being was going to waste-to-energy facilities. And so, again, because business was good, there wasn't really a need to think about the consumer side of it because there wasn't a need to sort well. Um, in the U.S., we did used to have dual stream recycling, which means that exactly what you mentioned in Japan, where you saw there's a bin for every for 10 different kinds of materials, that did used to happen in different places. In more rural areas, you see smaller recycling facilities that have dual stream bins outside. So people are still expected to sort. And there are certain municipalities that are trying to switch back to a more consumer-facing side of things. As you can imagine, that requires a higher level of consumer education, which is difficult to start out with. And so you still have a high level of contamination as you begin that switch. But even in places like Sweden that say that they recycle 100% of their trash, they're still burning it for fuel. And I know that there's a contingent that says that trash is renewable energy and waste to energy is renewable energy. But at the end of the day, trash is actually not renewable because it is a commodity. And for example, plastics are a petrol-based product. They do come from oil, which is non-renewable. You could say that paper is renewable, but again, it takes a large amount of energy to grow a tree. And just to kind of get a sense of thinking about the question, and this is what I try and do a lot in my work, what does sustainability mean in today's world? It's a word that we throw around quite a bit. And I think that it bodes well to think about that word in more detail than we currently do. So I want to take us back to before 
humans thought it was a good idea to recycle. At one point, there was a movement. It was like, oh, man, we're producing all of this waste, all of this garbage. Why don't we figure out places where we can reuse some things? Or maybe we can get a second life out of this. But why do we recycle? Like, why? 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 <laughs> because okay well let me let me let me get oh, contrarian my, oh, all of a second okay, okay. so we were like you could argue that in some cases we might be better off not recycling you could say that there's carbon stored in certain plastics and if you just take that directly to a landfill and let it sit there that that now is a form of carbon sequestration whereas if you took that plastic and spent all this time sorting your number one from your number seven or i don't even know how it works maybe you can give some insight there but you're spending a lot of energy in getting another use of something when perhaps we should consider not trying to get another we should stop making plastics altogether so why are we recycling it and i guess what i'm trying to get at is there's an energy footprint accompanied with all of this and so is recycling and this mantra, reduce, reuse, recycle, actually the best place to even begin when we're looking at the whole trash issue from a climate change perspective? This is such a great question. And I'm totally on your side. I think that there's a lot of people that are starting to ask the question, does recycling make a difference? My take is that recycling only makes a difference if it prevents production of virgin material, which right now it doesn't. But does that mean that we should stop these systems that we've created altogether? So to get back to the carbon footprint, there's this idea of embodied carbon, that every material has an embodied carbon count. And as you mentioned, there's embodied carbon that's created when it's created and then throughout the process of its life and then the end of its life. I mentioned that one of the major issues with regulation today is just the fact that there is no regulation around end of life for these materials. So even if materials are well sorted and they're clean and we can process them and turn them into as much as we can a virgin grade quality that can be turned into another product. And those are big ifs. Those are big ifs. That's what we're finding today because, as I mentioned, most of the, the sorting stations in the U.S. called MRFs were built in the 60s and haven't really been upgraded for a long time because there just hasn't been a necessity because our biggest buyer hasn't demanded it. So as I mentioned, there's really only a finite number of things that one can do with these materials. And when I say materials, again, I'm, I'm talking about the materials that we handle every day. So glass, aluminum, plastic, cardboard, paper, et cetera. There's really only a finite number of things that one can do with those materials. You can reuse it, you can landfill it, or you can recycle it. And the argument for landfills, I think, is a good one in some cases. As humans, we've been burying our trash for millions of years, the U.S. has a lot of land. Obviously, there's very high EPA regulation around landfills, and so it's very difficult to create one. But a lot of our landfills still have plenty of years left in them that will be continued to be used. So at some level, as humans, I imagine that we will always bury our trash to some level. And you're right. A lot of landfills have methane capture systems to get that methane that's coming off of the landfill, which is primarily from organics that are being thrown away in the landfill. And for plastics, it can be considered a method of carbon sequestration. So that's one thing that you can do with trash at the end of its life. And those options are still quite limited. You can, if it's well sorted, at least, you can do energy recovery. So paralysis, you can do mechanical, which is where you grind it and then melt it and turn it into a relatively virgin grade product. Paralysis is also considered depolymerization, so using chemical recycling methods to turn it back, to turn polymers, at least in plastics case, back to original monomers and trying to get it as much of a virgin quality as possible. Or you can do waste to energy, which is still considered recycling in a lot of areas. So again, I think the questions that you're asking are really valid. And I think the biggest thing to keep in mind with a lot of these questions is that there is no one solution. Waste is something that is part of our lives in a very real way. And I think there are many solutions within that. But 
they're good questions to be asking because they need to be asked in order to continue to shift the system that we've created today. This sets up a little game that we wanted to play. We have a, a series of questions. This is just me playing Christoph here with my game. This is my game. Um, I want to play. You want to play? <laughs> Lindsay, let's, let's pose you a couple questions and see if you can give people some quick guidance. And we can unpack these uh, too, if, if so needed. But what are we doing now that we should be doing more of? What are we doing now that we should be doing more of? We should be asking more questions about sustainability. I know that's, I know that's, hear me out. Like, where does my trash go? This better be good, Lindsay. How much energy goes into producing the recycling I know that's kind of a cop-out, but again, at the end of the day, consumption is consumption. I think that the zero waste movement is really important, but at the end of the day, we are humans. We have impact. And our only option is to have as the most productive impact, both positive and negative, possible. And a lot of it comes down to making individual choices for ourselves. I know that largely a lot of your listeners are individuals. And I know this question is asked a lot. You know, what can I do to make this trash problem go away? And I'm here to tell you, it's not going to go away overnight. And it really does come down to continuing to ask these questions and be curious about the systems that we're a part of, and then make choices based on your values and what you're learning about as part of that system. But, okay, sure. <laughs> I'm not satisfied with that answer, so I'm going to give the answer that I wanted. Yeah, just, give, just give me like one thing that yeah. we are doing with waste management that is actually I'll, good, and you can, you can go. Go ahead. Well, I, well, I was going to say things that are not good that we're now trying to do better on. So, unfortunately, I go to events where there's way more food than there needs to be, and at the end of that night, I'm like, oh my god, what's going to happen with the food? And I usually can't take it, and I usually don't know where it goes. And most of the times, it gets thrown out. Like, food waste is this major issue. So, what are we doing that I think we should be doing more of? I think finding those events that says, well, can at the end of this you know, event, can we donate this food to people who might be hungry? I think that's one great example. Is he, uh, is he right, Lindsay? But but I don't think we're necessarily doing enough of that or as individuals even thinking like I'm at some catered event and they probably produced way more than I needed and then they're just throwing it out. But is that what? really happening? Is that happening at some like good rate? Because I like I've gone to events and they've told me that it was donated. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll feel good. It's donated to the trash. What's yeah. up? <laughs> gotcha. Also, Lindsay, I feel like your comment was a little bit insensitive to asking all these questions. Won't people end up like Socrates and just imprisoned by the Athenians and forced <laughs> to drink hemlock? Are you okay with that on your conscience? You know what, guys? I'm going to play devil's advocate <laughs> once again. This, so many flanking maneuvers happening. Because here's the thing. Do you guys consider yourself scientists? No, I don't. Hardly. What happens when you sit in here with a scientist? You guys have had many different conversations. What happens when you sit in here with a scientist versus, I don't know, someone that is a student of the world, per se? <laughs> I don't... We try to translate it. I ask very, very silly questions like, can we pump all the CO2 to space and let them tell me why I'm, I'm a fool? I probably banter less. Sometimes they're a little bit intimidating or they're very erudite. What do you think, Christophe? I mean, we're all students of science. Well, when it comes down to like doing science, you have a hypothesis, right? That's the core. That's the core. So like my hypothesis is that if humans had more information about where their trash was going, they would reduce their trash flows. Or if humans had the agency to say, my trash can somehow contribute to sequestering carbon in some capacity, they would feel inclined to want to vote in that direction. And so the reason I ask, and maybe I should have been a little bit more leading with this question, is because I often find that when I speak with scientists and when I speak with people who have been in this industry for a long time, the number one thing that they do is they give solutions. And the fact is, is that we are in a place in our history, and you guys know this from climate change, there is no one solution. You know why? Because short term, sure, we need to get carbon out of the atmosphere. Long term, we need to reduce consumption. And there is so much inherent 
in what that looks like because it comes down to on a systemic level, it comes down to a regulatory level, it comes down to an economic level, it comes down to an individual level. And so that's what I mean when I say that it's actually, I think, worth asking these questions because I know it sounds philosophical, but again, we need to be willing to accept the fact that chaos is going to win out in the end when it comes to moving into a different stage of our of our humanity and what that looks like on a long-term basis. This reminds me of what I was telling you this morning, Ross, about my experience in Egypt. I was hoping to have an opening for it, and I think I just got one. Yeah, you can you can do it now. Yeah, it's good. So let's go back to the game, though. We're, we, going back <laughs> we're, ta- we're taking a detour. So the word zebela in Arabic means garbage, and zebelin are loosely translated garbage people. But these are people who will collect trash, and most of it's organic. And they collect all of Cairo's trash and then feed it to the pigs who go through this organic matter. And then they do this amazing activity of finding the things that the pigs will not eat and recycling those and actually selling those things for a lot of money because they have a lot of value and it's usually high value plastics. And so I just wanted to bring up this as a solution in an extremely chaotic city where you have people who are going around with donkey carts picking up trash and making a lot of money off of it and finding how this system works. And so I just wanted to throw that in, in terms of <laughs> systems, old school, and to your first game question, what, should, what are we doing that we should be doing more of? Like finding what works for that local community. But it was really sad in Egypt. Actually, it was 2010 and the Egyptian health minister decided to kill off all of the pigs in response to the H1N1 swine flu. And they weren't even carrying the virus. And it's like, this is an idiotic idea. And you're suddenly destabilizing a very important service that's been happening in a city of 22 million people. Well, how about that? Care to comment, Lindsay? (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to condemn the Egyptian government on the air? (laughs) Why don't I just make this whole tangent go away for you, Ross, and make it easy for you? I think one of the things that we should be doing more of is thinking about waste solutions in context, so on small-scale levels. So one of the things that I've been doing in rural municipalities is, again, low-tech processing for hard-to-recycle material. And what that means is that, you know, there's lots of different facilities that are being built to do depolymerization or other forms of chemical processing for plastics and other materials. And the fact is, is that these facilities have... $100 million price tags, which is just not feasible for smaller communities. And I think that for, like Christoph mentioned in Egypt, um, there's good examples of smaller countries that have more grassroots economic activity around waste and thinking about the principal least amount of processing for highest amount of yield is something that we are currently doing and i think we definitely should be doing more of okay thank you for humoring my very pedestrian insistence upon (laughs) upon a concrete example but asking questions is very important we try to do a lot the lcas life cycle assessments of these various processes are complicated and they interact in complex ways and you can't really just say one thing is just a simple yes or no a lot of the time the details matter and just to say one more thing about lca and embodied carbon do you guys know the EPA's WARM model, which is their version of LCA? I don't. Do you? I've seen it before, yeah. So this is a really good example of that. There's a lot of municipalities that are starting to track LCA, especially in solid waste departments. And everyone is using WARM. I won't use that misnomer of everyone. There's a lot of municipalities out there that are using WARM, and there's so few people that trust it. LCA and embodied carbon is a really complex question. And so again, thinking about sustainability as what it actually is rather than how we emotionally feel around it and what makes us feel good, I think that's another thing we should be doing more of. (laughs) Okay. I'm I'm satisfied with that answer now. Um, Great. All right. The next question in the game, what aren't we doing now that's low-hanging fruit that we should be doing? So many things. I think the most important thing is product regulation, to be totally honest. Again, I work on the market development side of things. I see market development as a stopgap measure to 
try and figure out what to do with all of these materials that will be created in the next 10 years and try and stop the flow of the trillions of pounds of waste that we'll see in the next five years all over the world. So there's a lot of question as to whether or not these processes have a positive effect on carbon reduction overall because it also is quite energy intensive for some of them. And so again, product stewardship, which is end of life ownership from the manufacturer side is crucial. We've seen a couple of different bans go into effect, especially in Seattle. Like you've probably heard of the plastic bag ban. You've probably heard of the plastic straw ban. Again, these are good questions to be asking because there are pros and cons to these bans as well. There's, for example, the plastic straw ban. There's a big conversation going on between the disabled and abled community around what that actually means and who it's really affecting. And then, for example, in terms of all of the different compostable straws you now see in production and rotation today, it's not always clear whether or not they can be composted at our local composter here at Cedar Hills. So I think definitely thinking about product stewardship, but again, thinking about product stewardship and manufacturer regulation at the federal level with an eye toward what does sustainability actually mean in today's world? That's pretty good. And as much as I like markets and prices and and getting things to happen, I think in some of these cases where there's merely a cost and it isn't something that can be transformed into something that is valuable, that that sounds like an appropriate place for regulation. And maybe that is end of life regulation might be the best way to address some of those issues. So I, I think that's a good answer. Christoph's nodding thoughtfully. I'm just trying to decide how feisty I want to get. It's it's the afternoon, and so I'm <laughs> inclined to get feistier. I don't think that the plastic straw ban is a good idea in Seattle. I think that there's a very small percent of the trash which is even comprised of plastic straws. I see Lindsay taking a sip of her Starbucks mug with a plastic straw in Uh-oh, it. Oh, shots fired! Um, and and I think it's a, there's a lot of virtual signaling, which is like low hanging fruit. We can get people rallied around banning plastic straws, but what problem are they actually trying to solve? Is it reducing the total amount of plastic going into waste streams? Because as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't solve that problem. Actually, what Starbucks has been doing is replacing the plastic straws with like a more durable plastic lid. So on net, there's more plastic going into production because of the plastic straw bin. Let's get feisty. (laughs) So Christoph, if you were listening, you would have heard me say that I think there's a lot of pros and cons to the different bands that we just, that we have in Seattle, including the plastic bag ban and the plastic straw ban. I mentioned one of the problematic issues, which is the ableist Um, identity around plastic straws and who uses them and who doesn't. And there are many, many other problematic elements of that, which some of them you touched on. And just to be clear, the Starbucks cup that I'm drinking out of, I have had for four months. It sits in my car because I use it when I don't have my other reusable mug out. This dude looks like a big tomato right now. And I'm on the road and I need to get a coffee and I don't have my cup nearby. So Yes, I think you are absolutely right. And you bring up a lot of really good issues. And Ross, just to make a quick note that I think that Christoph is actually doing a great example right now of thinking about sustainability in realistic terms and asking those questions. So I'm so glad that you've learned something from our talk so far today. Well well played, but, Lindsay. Thank yeah. You. But, <laughs> yeah, that was elegant hoisting <laughs> you just gave him. But let's just revisit one of the things that Christoph mentioned, which is virtuous regulation. And I think that that's a really key point. And yes, economically, there is no data about whether or not it evens out over the course of the day, compostable versus plastic. And once again, it only really makes a difference if you have the facilities to sort these materials and if you have the facilities to process these materials that are close by and thinking about freight and all of that. And I'll just go back to the other thing that we need to do, reduce consumption. It all comes down to consumption. At the end of the day, consumption is consumption. And we all consume 
And again, thinking about consumption as a choice rather than something that we feel guilty about, I think is really crucial. I have this question whenever I read degrowth people or, or people worried about consumption. Are we talking about material throughput and about waste or is it include acts of consumption? Like if I'm buying a service, like getting a, a massage or something like that, is, is it the material we're worried about or is it the act of buying something? That's a great question. And I think there could be an argument to go into the division of labor and how that breaks down into consumption overall, but that's probably more of an economic level to this podcast that we probably don't want to get into today. I feel like that's a totally different subject. So the consumption that I'm talking about is particularly material consumption. Okay, that's fine. It's fine to just clarify that then. Okay, the last question in this game that we have, what are we doing now that we shouldn't be doing? I will talk a little bit around that, if that's okay with you guys. And I'll talk a little bit about electricity and oil. And to create a short answer to that question, I would say we should not think about waste to energy as renewable energy. So I'll just give a quick story. It's story time with Lindsay now (laughs) as to why I think that. And this will also help to illustrate why trash and and recycling materials. So again, plastic, aluminum, cardboard, et cetera, um, are really driven by the cost of oil. So for example, there's about 75 waste to energy plants in the US today that are functioning. There's one in good old Spokane, Washington, just a quick four and a half hour jaunt over I-90. It's a beautiful drive. It's a beautiful waste station. Do you work for the tourist board or what? <laughs> I am from Spokane. Oh, okay. Used there we to go. Be, used to be a 509 area code, no longer. So this particular waste energy plant in Spokane generates about 18 kilowatts of energy per day from about 800 tons of trash. And the plant requires about three kilowatts of energy to function. And ostensibly, they sell the rest to the public utility as electricity. But that only really happens when the cost of oil is low. And just to further illuminate what I mean by that, public utilities both generate and purchase energy from a variety of different sources in order to maintain the level of electricity that they need for their population. I don't quite remember the Seattle-specific breakdown, but it's a lot of hydropower, some nuclear, some wind, some very small percentages, coal, nuclear, and natural gas, et cetera. Each state designates a per-unit price for energy, which is called the avoided cost. And this per unit price just means how much public utilities pay other forms of energy for that energy. So when a public utility pays that external provider, they pay that unit price, which is called the avoided cost. So the avoided cost has two components, one of which is the energy component. So for example, if a public utility buys energy from an external provider, they will reduce operations at their most expensive facility. So for example, Seattle gets the majority of our electricity from hydropower. If they're if they're buying power or energy from an external source, they'll reduce operations at their oldest hydropower plant. The other component to avoided cost is capacity. And what that means is Public utilities will buy more energy from external providers to stave off development of a new hydropower plant, for example. So in Spokane, for example, let's go back to that sweet waste-to-energy plant. They produce about 18 kilowatts of energy a day. They use about three. Technically, they're selling the rest of that energy. However, Spokane Public Utilities only buys that electricity when the cost of oil is high. Mm. So 
technically speaking, the public utilities might buy more electricity from waste energy until until the cost of oil goes down. So I think that, again, going back to your question, we need to stop thinking about waste energy as a renewable resource because technically buying electricity from waste energy could be said to generate more carbon in the atmosphere since it drives the price of oil down. Yeah, I've seen this sort of thing before. As renewables get cheaper, there's more demand for renewables. That means there's more supply of oil available. Therefore, the price of oil drops. People use more oil as a result. That's sort of what you're getting at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting. I, I still haven't found a way out of that. It is confusing. I don't think there is a way out of it unless you're talking about fixing the market failure of if there's carbon going into the atmosphere, we need to pull it back out and you get away from that. You get it, you solve that problem by saying whatever form of energy we're enabling, if that emits carbon, we either need to pull that back out or not have it emit carbon. But I think it's worth, as you were talking about some of the decisions that utilities need to make, and obviously, I mean, they act like monopolies, but they also are working for the state because they have to deliver this public good, which is that we as a society expect energy to be there when we want it. But when I was living in New York City, I even got to tour some uh, what's referred to as peaker plants or natural gas fired plants. The utility keeps around because it's only going to run between, well, usually just one day, like one hour a year. And during those times where there's just that excess demand and it's so expensive, and then they'll turn on the plant at that time. So there's some really interesting dynamics that they have to navigate. So it's kind of to further complicate all the calculations that go into figuring out, like, do I have, do I sell energy onto the grid or not? Yeah. yeah, and that's a good point. And I I kind of hate this game a little bit because, honestly, it kind of goes against my own process of never having a solid answer for any one thing. Because ultimately that's kind of how we've gotten ourselves in this position in the first place is wanting to have bottom lines that work across the board every single time. And that just isn't the case. And so I think that when you say, what is something that we shouldn't do anymore? And I say what we shouldn't think about waste to energy as a renewable resource. Of course, there have to be times when we do think about it like that. And again, I think that goes back to just the question what does it actually mean to be sustainable in today's world? And what does zero waste actually mean? And we live in a world with 6 billion people. I mean, there's going to be impact. We're going to have to burn trash. We just consume way too much stuff to not do it. And so I think as long as we think about it in a way that makes sense for the current state of our economy and the current state of our environment then yeah, go for it. What we should not continue doing is thinking about it as a renewable resource. If it doesn't fit on a bumper sticker, Lindsay, I just, I just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Christoph, time is short and there's still a fair amount on here. So Lindsay, you've done a good job here with offering the proper amount of nuance and digging into some of these topics. What do you want to ask about now that we're wrapping up near the end? Dude, make this count. This is, this is it. I think you know this question's coming, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Which one is it? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. But I don't know. It's the, Lindsay, you have two things in your hand. One is a magic wand. <laughs> and the other is a crystal ball. So you wave the magic wand and whatever you want to happen happens. And you now have a crystal ball so you can see it happening. <laughs> you haven't listened to the show probably enough to know that this is a common Christophism. But okay. <laughs> so she has those two objects. Okay. Sorry, I was rolling my eyes. <laughs> what was it? This was thorough resting. What was the question? <laughs> on air. So the I, last time I invite friends on to do a so podcast. I have so I have a crystal ball and a magic wand. Uh-huh. And so let, let me rephrase. And Ross, let, let's just cut this out. <laughs> let, let's let's I'll use my discretion wisely. I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> All right. Well, so you have a crystal ball. And you're looking into a future that you want to see. And it's happening because you waved your magic wand and you wanted that thing to happen. So what has happened specifically? Like what's our perfect ideal scenario with respect to trash and humans' engagement with it? That's a better question. <laughs> I would say that 
there's long-term and short-term goals. So the long-term is that we're valuing waste. What is the highest and best use of our waste feedstocks? We are disposing meaningfully. How do we meaningfully biodegrade of waste feedstocks when they're no longer needed? We have product stewardship. Manufacturers have responsibility for end of life of material. And then in the short term, we have, again, a stopgap measure to deal with the immense amount of trash that will be created in the next 10 years or so. We are creating domestic markets that focus on lowest processing for highest amount of yield. And recycling actually does prevent new products from being created, especially from virgin petroleum. I am satisfied with those responses. You're satisfied. Okay. I asked that question at the beginning and we kind of jumped over it. Those very basic questions are surprisingly hard to answer sometimes. Um, But I heard a quote, I'm sure this is the the one that people always say at you too. It's the, when you throw something away, where is the away? Right. So what exactly is trash? Ross, we're getting philosophical right at the end of this. I know. Just give, give me give me a simple <laughs> nugget, yes or no binary. Get Boolean with me, and uh, <laughs> one one's man trash is another man's treasure. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> you know that's such a great question, and I will not. So I will not answer it. <laughs> <laughs> so I love spending time in landfills. I have to say. I am happiest when I am at a recycling transfer station or a landfill. I think it's fascinating what people throw away. There was just a story in the New York Times about trash pickers in San Francisco. One guy that spends the majority of his time trash picking along Mark Zuckerberg Street and the litany of things that he he pulled out. Is that different from the Freegans? I think so. Okay. Because the trash pickers sell them. Got it. But I am not totally well-versed on the details of this new economy. And the freegans eat it. So they hang out like outside of the Trader Joe's trash. Right. And they, you know. (laughs) All right. Let her her tell her story. (laughs) So I, I am totally fascinated by the things that people throw away. If you've never been to... A transfer station or a landfill, I would highly recommend it. You can find anything from boats to cars to designer jeans to really new baby stuff to pet crates to anything. I think it's fascinating. I don't think that anyone to necessarily feel guilt about the things that they throw away because I think it's a very complex problem that makes us all human. I think, again, thinking about what it is that we value is actually the more interesting question there. But I do want to touch on the point that Ross said about trash going away. I think this is problematic because we do say that we throw trash away and ultimately away is a place. It's a location. And that place used to be China. It's no longer China. And now we're trying to ship our trash to other aways like Malaysia or Vietnam or Hong Kong or India. And a lot of these places are fighting back and don't want to accept our trash. And so we're looking for other aways to ship our trash to. And that is a large reason why these commodities continue to be so volatile is because the buyers and the availability of buyers keep on changing. And at the end of the day, I think that away is a problematic idea because it means that we're ultimately trying to colonize places that we don't really care about with our trash. This is not my idea. There is a very amazing science lab in Alberta. The lead scientist there has talked about a way being the next form of colonialism, but I do think it's an important thing to think about. A whole second podcast worth probably. 
and we didn't even get into organics. There's there's so much here. We're going to do another one about organic waste too. I guess you could just say trash is stuff you don't want anymore. That's kind of a <laughs> tepid, weak little answer. We're coming for you, organic waste. Yeah. But how about we wrap this up, Lindsay, with you giving the listeners maybe one takeaway or idea of something that they can do that makes them closer to their relationship with trash? Great question, Christoph. I would really encourage folks to look at what they're throwing away. There is, it's funny because this is very much a science-based podcast and we've actually been quite philosophical about this the whole time. We haven't really dug into the economics behind behind waste all that much, but I think it's a good thing for us to think about our values and our relationships to the things that we throw away as a precursor to thinking about what comes after that and what else is involved in the systems of trash. From a logistical standpoint, uh, recycling isn't profitable at all unless recyclables are clean and well sorted. So if you live in Seattle or pretty much any major municipal city, your recyclables, if you're throwing into your recyclable bin, have to be clean. So no dirty peanut butter jars. That therein begs the question of... Is almond butter okay? Or, you know? <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> Anything besides peanut butter. But that again begs the question about water consumption and energy outputs there. But let's just keep this simple and say that uh, make sure that your recyclables are clean. But I think it's really interesting just to start thinking about the things that you're throwing away. If you have the opportunity, take yourself or your kids um, and do a field trip to your local transfer station or landfill. They're usually always available for tours. And just be ready to marvel at the things that you'll see there. Actually, and fun fact, our local landfill here in Seattle um, has its own elk herd. So if you go to the landfill in Seattle, you might get to see a herd of elk. Very Portlandia. Okay. That, that's, that's nice that they have that. I've only been to one. I went to the one in Guatemala City and it was a whole trip. Uh, no time for that now. <laughs> I don't want to pull Todd do the Egypt. You already got the one, one cool look at me. I'm, I'm well-traveled and smart story. I'll, I'll let you, <laughs> you have the badge. You get it on other episodes. I'll come back on yeah, it. You, you, you get it, Ross. <laughs> well, thank you so much for hanging in with us, listener. This has been a wonderful yeah. time. I'll probably tidy it up a little bit. Lindsay, where can someone find your, your work? Is there a website, a Twitter handle, anything that you want people to know about? You can find me on Instagram, yeah, Lindsay Ng, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-E-N-G-H. And I actually started sharing a lot of my findings about trash when I first started learning about it there. And I was actually pretty tickled by the number of people that were also as equally fascinated about it as I was and still am. But if you like following along and seeing pictures of trash... <laughs> Definitely. An offer like send that. Me a, send me a no. DM. <laughs> you all, the, all the people like looking at pictures of trash. <laughs> DMing, crowd in your inbox. Okay. That's good, Lindsay. Thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us. It was super fun. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, share the podcast, give us a great rating and review in iTunes, Apple Podcasts, as they say. And thank you so much for joining us.